From American Public Media, this is an American Radio Works documentary, The Hospice Experiment. I'm Deborah Amos. I pray to God, please let me live through the day and thank you for last night. When Kitty Cheney learned she had terminal cancer, she rejected chemotherapy and chose hospice. Because I have seen where chemo has made people sicker than the ailment that they had, and they, they died anyway. Hospice is specialized care for people facing death, care aimed at comfort and quality of life, not a cure. It is common today, but 40 years ago, it was revolutionary. People died badly. We never gave enough pain medication, never. In the coming hour, the untold story of a 1960s movement, the hospice experiment. From American Radio Works, the documentary unit of American public media. First, this news. This is The Hospice Experiment, an American Radio Works documentary from American public media. I'm Deborah Amos. Death is un-American, an affront to the American dream. Historian Arnold Toynbee wrote those words in 1969, a time of big change. Thousands and thousands of young anti-war demonstrators have gathered... Not to go to school tomorrow, the next day, or next year, until we have got our demands met. Peace and civil rights, environmentalism, and women's liberation. I'm a woman, and this is why I'm marching. But a quieter revolution was underway, too. One led by a few middle-aged women who wanted to change our way of death. They were the founders of the hospice movement. Their movement did not involve marches, and until now, their story has mostly gone untold. This hour, John Bewin explores the birth of the hospice movement. I'm going to tell you something. You know, you think about people on death row. That was my first thought. I'm on death row. Hi, Manny. Hi, sweetie. The family matron walks gingerly as she arrives for a gathering in her honor on a mild January day. Her granddaughter's modest one-story house is on a cul-de-sac in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Ooh, it smells good. Hi. How's it going, Nanny? How's my cook? I was born uh, October the 23rd, 1925. I'm Mary Kay Cheney. Most people call her Kitty Cheney. She used to be plump and rosy-cheeked, the owner and operator of beauty shops in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Now she weighs just 90 pounds and her face has a yellow pallor. But her gaze is sharp and she's still in command when she wants to be. We take the drippings. Okay. We put four cups of water and four cups. Okay. How do I do green beans? Oh, she's the center. I'm totally. Donna Lafave of Chapel Hill is one of Kitty's daughters. She's very generous and giving. She's the kind of grandmother that was always um, in the floor playing with your kids. <laughs> oh, here we are. We got our baby now. We'll make a picture. So when, when she was diagnosed, it was pretty devastating for the family. I have pancreatic cancer, advanced stages. By the time doctors found the tumor in Kitty's pancreas four months ago, it was too big and too late. That's where hospice starts, with a decision to stop fighting for a cure. My doctor, David Goldstein, suggested 
that I go to hospice because there was nothing that could be done. And I am so glad he did because I have seen where chemo has made people sicker than the ailment that they had and they, they died anyway. My mother had radiation and it really burned her up. So I have had a productive life rather than be sick with my hair coming out and everything. In other words, even though cancer is killing Kitty, she's not dying today or spending her energy fighting for life. She's living and little by little letting go. That's the hardest thing. When my kids were coming home, I'd always have the meals planned, what they wanted, and all that. And so at Christmas time, I was had to turn everything over to them. Only two things. I made the dressing and the coleslaw. And I thought, oh my God, it's going to be so hard on them, they won't be able to. But they did the greatest job. You would not have believed that table. So I knew right then I didn't need to be in the kitchen anymore. Coleslaw, Mom. Okay. Or pound cake. <laughs> <coughs> or dressing. You will the next time. These days, about three in ten terminally ill patients get hospice care in the United States. Hospice has become commonplace just a generation after it started as a fringe movement. Its founders are women of Kitty Shanae's generation. By far the best known is Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. In 1969, the Swiss-born psychiatrist published the international bestseller On Death and Dying. In the 70s and 80s, she traveled the world lecturing on what she called the West's death-denying culture and her theory about the five stages of grief a dying person typically goes through. On Death and Dying is still read in some 30 languages, but Kubler-Ross has been out of the public eye for years. We are at the Out of Africa Wildlife Park, side of Phoenix. Hello, sweetie. Yes, you're pretty. I take you home anytime. Kubler-Ross is in her late 70s now. She uses a wheelchair after a series of strokes in the 1990s. She's small and hunched. She wears a baseball cap over her gray hair. Only occasionally is she recognized in public. Well, I want to say hello and tell you how much I appreciate what you've done for, for all of us and your work. Hold on to me, all right? A young zoo worker, Peter Carter, gives Kubler-Ross a ride in a golf cart. What is your name? Kubler-Ross. Told that his passenger helped pioneer the hospice movement, Carter gets wide-eyed. I can't tell you what a wonderful thing that did. I mean, my grandmother had uh, uh, Alzheimer's, and, uh, you know, it helped them independence and support. And, I mean, you know, dignity, that was it. <laughs> I'm not get all emotional now. So. Kubler-Ross made a mark on Western culture that will clearly outlive her. You know those stages of Kubler-Ross? The ones the dying go through? Anger. Denial, bargaining, depression, depression, acceptance. 
In the recent movie The Life of David Gale, Laura Linney's terminally ill character talks with a friend played by Kevin Spacey. I'm not up to the job of dying person, marveling at blades of grass, <laughs> lecturing strangers to relish every moment. That's the stereotype. The Kubler-Ross and the hospice movement offered incense and death with a smile. But it's never been that simple. Passing her days now in a Scottsdale group home, Kubler-Ross herself is anything but serene. She cusses and smokes, and though she can be warm and witty, she's often crotchety. I was not lucky enough to die. Waiting to die is a boring process. And then I was angry at God. I gave him hell, too. I'm sorry, who was that? God. I said, you are not any better than Hitler himself. And he laughed his head off. When Kubler-Ross talks to God, it seems, God talks back. But whatever the popular perception, Kubler-Ross never said there was one right way to die. Here she is in a radio interview back in 1975. The question is really, what does it mean to die with dignity? To die with dignity to me means to die within your character. That means there are people who have used denial all their life long. They will most likely uh, die with it in a stage of denial. There are people who have been fighters and rebels all their life long. And by golly, they want to die that way. And to those patients, you have to help them to say it's okay. To grasp why hospice emerged and why it matters, it helps to remember how medicine evolved in the United States and some other rich countries. Eric Cassell is a retired New York physician and Cornell University professor who's written widely on the care of dying and suffering people. You know the famous picture of the uh, physician sitting at the bedside of a sick child? It's a British picture he's sitting there like that. He's watching the child die. Why is he, what do you need a doctor to do that for? Well, because nobody else can do that. They can't watch their child die. He can do that and make sure the child's kept covered and these things. Nobody does that now. With the rise of modern technological medicine in the last century, doctors no longer sat and watched. They worked furiously to keep people alive with heroic surgeries and life support machines. Kubler-Ross critiqued that reflex in a 1984 PBS documentary. We have perfected the most sophisticated machines to keep bodies functioning. We never ask the permission of the patient. Is that really what they want? To me, that's a terrible uh, dehumanization of the experience of dying. I took care of the dying before there were hospices, and people died badly. We never gave enough pain medication. Never. Cassell remembers that in the 1950s, hospitals avoided the most effective painkillers, like morphine, for fear of addicting patients. Never mind, the patient was going to die anyway. And 90% of doctors never told their cancer patients they had the disease. You say, well, that's lying. Well, we didn't do it because we were liars. We did it because we thought that if you told somebody they had cancer, that was the end, because they would say, well, what are you going to do? And we would have to say... We don't know what to do. We, you know, we don't have anything to do. Starting in the late 1960s, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was the leading spokesperson for the idea that dying people needed more dignity and better care. But the real founder of the hospice movement lives in London. 
She's a formidable white-haired English woman most Americans have never heard of. I'm Cicely Saunders, and uh, my story in this field goes right back to 1948, when I was a social worker meeting a young Polish Jew who had an inoperable cancer. I became very fond of him. In fact, Saunders and her patient, David Tasma, fell in love. She was 29 then, an Oxford graduate and former nurse and a devout Christian. She was moved by Tasma's deep anguish, not just the pain from his tumor. He was also sad and alone. Um, I remember him saying, I'm just a rude sort of fellow. He told me how he'd been brought up in the Warsaw Ghetto and his grandfather had been a rabbi. But in a way, he left it all behind. But I think he just felt he was just not an important person. In talking with Tasma, Saunders found her life's mission to ease all kinds of pain at the end of life. Pain not only physical, but also emotional, psychological, and spiritual. Her first step was to volunteer at something called St. Joseph's Hospice in London. Not quite a hospice in the modern sense, but a small religious home for the dying. (laughs) They had no drug charts, no patient's notes, no ward reports. They had tender loving care by some Irish Roman Catholic nuns with Irish nursing auxiliaries. They were lovely. The patients at St. Joseph's were seen as beyond medical help. For that very reason, the nuns could ignore prevailing scruples about pain control. There I saw the regular giving of oral morphine for the first time and realized that here was the answer to the control of constant pain that I'd never seen in hospital because people were having pain first. They were earning their morphine by having pain. This was a very different scene. Saunders learned to administer morphine before pain gripped the patient, not after, to stay ahead of the pain rather than chasing it. She wanted to take such practices beyond the religious home to more dying patients in a medical setting. But first, she says she got some advice from a surgeon friend. He told her that before setting out, in effect, to launch a new branch of medicine, she'd better become a doctor first. It's the doctors who desert the dying, and there's so much more to be learned about pain. And you'll only be frustrated if you don't do it properly, and they won't listen to you. So, with my father's money, bless him, and his encouragement, I became a medical student at the age of 33. When she got her medical degree in 1957, Saunders became the first modern doctor to devote her career to dying patients. It would take her another 10 years to open the world's first modern hospice. Coming up in a minute, Kitty Shanae's experience as a hospice patient. And in 1966, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross starts interviewing dying patients in Chicago, angering her fellow doctors. And started screaming at her, saying things like, uh, what kind of a ghoul are you? I'm Deborah Amos. You're listening to The Hospice Experiment from American Radio Works. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. This is The Hospice Experiment, an American Radio Works documentary from American Public Media. I'm Deborah Amos. In 1966, psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross started interviewing dying hospital patients in Chicago, asking them what they wanted and needed. 
The experience would change Kubler-Ross's career and her life. She didn't know that in London, Cicely Saunders was building the world's first modern hospice, or that a group in Connecticut was beginning to plan for America's first hospice program. John Bewin picks up our story on the hospice movement. When she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in the fall of 2003, Kitty Shanae's doctor estimated she'd die within six months. Hey, hey good morning. How are you all? Fine. Kitty became a patient of UNC Hospice, a branch of the University of North Carolina Health System. Her hospice nurse, Roland Severson, visits about once a week at the townhouse in Durham, where Kitty lives with her husband. I really feel good. Well, you look great. Thank you. You're sleeping well? Yes. Four months after her diagnosis, Kitty has done better than expected. She took a cruise and a Christmas vacation at the beach with her family. She and her husband are still managing their lives with regular visits from Kitty's daughters. But her digestive system is faltering. She takes medicines for pain and other symptoms. Well, you're taking the Reglan. The Phenergan is? A Phenergan. That's for nausea. But it gives you such a dry mouth. Right. And uh, you, you don't, can't breathe very well, you know. I took a Darvacet to go to sleep with. Mm-hmm. Severson stays for a full hour. He takes Kitty's vital signs. 116 over 62. And the two chat like friends. The conversation ranges to Kitty's family history and her children and to Maurice's health. Kitty's husband is 90, a native of Germany who came to the U.S. before the Second World War. Maurice has a batch of illnesses, too. He's so sick, he may soon become a hospice patient himself. Are, are you feeling relatively stable well, at this yeah, point? Yeah, I feel pretty good. Yeah. Just very tired. I have no energy. I don't know whether that's the lung cancer or the asthma, the emphysema. But I have absolutely no energy, no, no go up and go. Hospice tries to ease the sometimes dreadful realities of terminal illness, but it can't erase them. In talking with Kitty and her family, Severson mixes optimism with gentle frankness. But your appetite is still strong. I go to bed at night dreaming about food. But I can't eat. You know, you can only eat just... A little bit at a time. If well, you... you know what you people take for granted, and I took for granted, like a piece of bacon. Mm-hmm. And you realize you're never going to have a piece of bacon again. It's too much of an insult it to the system. It just your mind. Right. F- fried foods can be disruptive. You can't, you can't do it. Right. So, whatever, for another one more day at the time. It is sort of, you've been doing so well for yep. a good long period of time now, but yep. there will be invariably yeah. some changes. I know. That... I know. You don't have to tell me. It's not uphill, it's downhill. You know, I I think really, we weren't really sure we were so ready for Mom to go on hospice. Kitty's oldest daughter, Teresa Harrison, visits often from her home three hours away in Spartanburg, South Carolina. She says she wanted her mother to fight the cancer somehow, to at least try a special diet she'd read about online. And Teresa wonders if Kitty shouldn't have waited until death was closer before starting hospice care. I think I felt that them coming in early was like a constant, it's a reminder every time they walk in the door that that their illness, that they're dying. 
that they're dying, you know. I don't think I've ever felt like that. But Kitty had her own doubts when her doctor first brought up hospice. My reaction wasn't favorable because I didn't know that much about hospice. It was more like a group session. That's what I sort of, in my mind, I thought of it. Your, your image of it was that it was sort of a touchy-feely thing uh-huh. to make you, try to make you feel better, yes. and that was it. Yeah. Sit with you through your pain. For her, she says, hospice has turned out to be, above all, practical medical help. Like Kitty, most hospice patients are cared for at home. You have someone here once a week to take all your vital signs. And I remember going with family with cancer. We had to go out once a week to a doctor. And sometimes that person would be hardly able to get in a car. And so this is just wonderful. This way I don't have to ask someone to stop by the drugstore for me. They deliver it for me. In its 30-year history in the United States, hospice has evolved some, especially with advances in pain medication. But its core principles are constant. Generous control of symptoms, attention to the patient's psychological and spiritual needs, care and support for the family as well as the patient. These ideas come straight from the English nurse-turned-doctor Cicely Saunders. Starting in the late 1950s, she wrote articles in medical journals and talked to whoever would listen on both sides of the Atlantic. Well, it was just very exciting to meet people who were interested and that you weren't just some crazy person who was looking at some vague dream, but there were people saying, there is a need and we know it and we're interested and we'll join. One of the first Americans to respond was a Connecticut nurse named Florence Wald. She used to be five foot two, but now in her mid-80s, she's down to an even five feet. Florence Wald walks the gleaming halls of the Yale New Haven Hospital with Bernard Litton, a urologist and professor emeritus. Litton leads us into one of those circular, plunging medical school lecture halls. We're standing in the Fickney Amphitheater. In 1963, I think, Cicely came here and gave her first talk on hospice care. In 1963, we were struggling with patients, particularly the cancer patients, who were being treated with surgery and with radiation. Despite the fact that their conditioning was worsening, the curative treatment was pursued. At the time, Wald was dean of nursing at Yale. She listened enthralled as Saunders described her experimental work, using drug cocktails and tender attention to keep dying cancer patients alert and comfortable. To us, she was a nurse, and uh, that was the epitome of nursing. So it was a very, very uh, moving experience for me. Wald was so inspired that within a couple of years, she resigned her deanship at Yale. She started working with a small group in New Haven toward founding the first hospice program in the United States. It's no accident that the hospice movement came along when it did, says author Eric Cassell. The private life became public in the 1960s. That's extremely important to understand that because that made a lot of this all possible. Until the 60s, death was sort of like sex, not a topic for polite discussion. But social turmoil was shaking the culture loose. The book, Everything You've Always Wanted to Know About Sex But Were Afraid to Ask, was published in 1969, 
the same year as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's On Death and Dying. Suffering used to be silent. Nobody talked about death even. I once gave a lecture on the care of the dying in 1972, and somebody stood up before that, got up in, from the audience to say, this is outrageous. You have no right to talk about these. These are private matters. See, and now it's not a private matter at all, is it? So this was a time of protest. It was a time of protest against the Vietnam War, but it was also the civil rights movement. Then there began to be talk about patients' rights. Florence Wald was the daughter of New York intellectuals and a supporter of the civil rights movement. She came to see better care for dying patients as a matter of human rights. For her part, Kubler-Ross seems to have been wired for rebellion. Elizabeth Kubler grew up in an upper-middle-class family in Zurich. My father absolutely was convinced I had to work in his office and become his secretary, his top-notch secretary number one. Mm. I'd be anything else but not the secretary. And that gave me the energy to do what I needed to do and what I loved to do. Elizabeth wanted to be a doctor. She found jobs in laboratories. At the end of World War II, she volunteered to go to Poland and work with sick and starving people. She saw the Nazis' death camp at Majdanek, an experience she later wrote about and described to friends. She was highly impacted by um, seeing the evidences of the deaths of thousands upon thousands and thousands of children and started, I think, her interest in death and dying started right there. Mualimu Imara is a retired Episcopal priest and a friend to Kubler-Ross since 1966. By then, Kubler-Ross had married an American and taken a job as a psychiatrist at the University of Chicago. Imara was a divinity student and a chaplain at Chicago's Billings Hospital. He got assigned to work with Kubler-Ross on a controversial seminar in which she interviewed dying patients. The most frustrating thing for you right now is that you can't speak well. The PBS program Nova filmed Kubler-Ross sitting with terminally ill people and their families. This woman was paralyzed by disease and could barely talk, so her daughter joined the conversation. The one thing Mother wanted to ask you, and the thing that bothers her, is that she feels that she's, since she's unable to use her body, what purpose is she serving? And she feels like for anybody to live, they should have some purpose in life, and she can't see what her purpose is now. Yeah. Do, do you think it's more important to run around the house using the broom and cleaning windows? Mm-hmm. Or is there also a purpose in learning how to receive? Mm-hmm. You got her there. <laughs> and letting your children mother you a little bit after mm-hmm. you have mothered them for so many years. Don't you think that teaches them something? In their Chicago seminars in the 1960s, Kubler-Ross and Imara interviewed terminally ill patients before a classroom of medical and divinity students. The seminars were very popular. The university hated me. Oh, they had so many hang-ups. And what they were concerned about was that um, if the patients heard the word death, or talked about death, it somehow would destroy their peace of mind. Their peace of mind and any sense of hope. Imara recalls one furious doctor who confronted Kubler-Ross in the crowded lobby of the hospital. And uh, started screaming at her. 
saying things like, uh, what kind of a ghoul are you? And, uh, you know, this and that. Uh, seeing patients, you're, you're irresponsible. Seeing patients without permission and so on. And she would simply, she simply stood there. She said, I never see a patient without permission. And he took a step towards her. And I took a step towards him. You know, I'm six foot. I've been six foot ever since I was seven. And I was in a heck of a lot better shape than I am now. But she, I remember feeling her grab my coat, you know, grab my coat on the side and give it a firm yank like this, you know. And I knew she was there. She was not in the least bit threatened by this guy. Those interviews with dying patients were the basis for Kubler-Ross's book on death and dying. Its publication made a sensation, but the University of Chicago said Kubler-Ross's work wasn't real medical research. I said 5,000 pages are not enough, huh? There's not enough research. No, it's not science. I said tough shit, that's your problem, not mine. Chicago declined to offer Kubler-Ross tenure, and she and the university parted ways. But by that time, uh, she had become so well-known... Florence Wall. ...that uh, primarily nurses were the ones who asked her to speak, and she was soon going all over. So essentially what she did was to um, have an independent university of her own. And they will share with you what it is specifically that you can do for them so they can die with peace and without fear. When I started this work, I was very much hated for sitting with dying patients and making the hospital famous for dying patients. And a decade later, I received so many doctor degrees, I can't even count them. And I don't understand that because I've never invented anything. I've never done anything except sit with people and listen to them and hear them. When people heard or read Kubler-Ross and wanted to take action, they had a model. In 1967, Cicely Saunders had opened the world's first modern hospice in a leafy part of South London. She named it St. Christopher's, after the patron saint of travelers. One of the important things to say about St. Christopher's um, is that what you're seeing here um, is just the building. Um, And I say that really quite with some emphasis because hospices are not buildings, they're philosophies. Barbara Monroe is executive director of St. Christopher's Hospice. It's now a $15 million a year institution, the size of a small hospital with 48 beds, gardens, aromatherapy, and a library. But most of its 500-plus patients get care in their homes. Cicely Saunders still comes to her office at St. Christopher's, even though she's in her mid-80s, and there's already a big bronze bust of her in the lobby. The bust she blames on a donor. He gave us a very good donation here, but rather on condition that I had my head done by this chap and that it was put in reception. And I said, well, it can't go into reception till I'm dead, but I was overruled. St. Christopher's still helps to lead research on things like pain medication and how to ease the grieving process. It's also a worldwide training center for those who care for the dying. One of the things that we're very committed to in our education programs is supporting the developing world. And we've had people here from Africa, Latvia, Russia, India, um, Swaziland, Mm. Vietnam. um, From its beginnings, St. Christopher's set an example for North America, too. 
Florence Wald worked here before founding Connecticut Hospice in 1974. So did Dr. Balfour Mount, a cancer surgeon from Montreal who became another key figure in the hospice movement. He came across Saunders' name in 1973 while reading On Death and Dying by Kubler-Ross. He picked up the phone and called Saunders in London. She came on the line and I explained who I was and um, told her that I was interested in coming to see what they were doing. And she said, I know you. Do you want to come to London with your wife, see a few plays, then come over to St. Christopher's, have a quick walk around and have a look, and then go home? Well, I won't have it. You be prepared to come over, roll your sleeves up, and get to work for a full week, and I'll have you. Uh, and she was absolutely right. <laughs> I was planning to bring my wife with me and see a few plays. <laughs> Mount made the trip without his wife. I was deeply impressed. That's where I wanted to die, first of all. <laughs> Two years later, in 1975, Mount founded the world's first hospital-based hospice. He called it a palliative care unit at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Montreal. Starting in the mid-70s, hospice programs sprouted by the dozens, then the hundreds. In 1982, Congress passed a landmark law requiring Medicare to pay for hospice, placing it in the mainstream of American medicine. Today, more than 3,000 hospice programs serve about 900,000 patients a year in the United States. And there are now, what is it, 8,000 programs in over 100 countries around the world that have grown from the experience of St. Christopher's Hospice London, period, and, and the work of Cecily Saunders. I'm Deborah Amos. Still to come, a focus on meaning at the end of life, and Kitty Shanae faces her last days. I don't want the time to come that I don't have any control over myself. Right. That's when I want to go. Right. You're pretty tough. I hope so. I hope so when we get there. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Funding for the hospice experiment provided by the JL Foundation. To see photographs of Kitty Shanae and links to more information on hospice, visit AmericanRadioWorks.org. You can find out how to order a CD of this program and hear more American Radio Works documentaries. That's at AmericanRadioWorks.org. You're listening to The Hospice Experiment. Our program continues in just a moment from American Public Media. This is The Hospice Experiment an American Radio Works documentary from American Public Media. I'm Deborah Amos. In setting out to treat terminally ill patients, the founders of the hospice movement wanted to care for the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. Hospice workers encourage dying people, together with their families, to look back on the patient's life and find meaning in that life. The approach was apparent in the last weeks of Kitty Shanae's life as a hospice patient in North Carolina. John Bewin has the final segment of the hospice experiment. 
Cicely Saunders and Florence Wald are both in their 80s. More than 40 years after they met at Yale, the two remain close friends. I like this blue, it's so nice. I got it in a sale, 75% off. Wow. <laughs> Wald is visiting Saunders at St. Christopher's Hospice in London. Two smartly dressed, white-haired women in glasses and sensible shoes. Wald inspects the new bronze likeness of Saunders in the lobby, then gives its flesh-and-blood subject a blunt critique. Uh, I thought it looked too severe. Well, it's got a hint of a smile. I wouldn't want to cross her, I must say. <laughs> Both women are still active, Saunders at St. Christopher's, Wald promoting hospice care in prisons. But they talk easily about being near the end of their own lives. But of course, I always know that there are going to be things that I haven't finished yet before I die. I'd, I'd love to tidy my desk. Yes, me too. <laughs> we won't. No. The three hospice pioneers whose stories we've told here, Saunders, Wald, and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, all say they have no fear of dying, having seen much of it. The three have widely differing spiritual views. Saunders, the devout Christian, Wald, an agnostic Jew, and Kubler-Ross, a believer in New Age spirit guides. Nonetheless, they all agreed from the start. Psychological and spiritual questions are so important at the end of life that they should be part of hospice care. Cicely Saunders. One of the people who's had an enormous impression on me and through me on the hospice movement as a whole is Viktor Frankl, the Jew who wrote Man's Search for Meaning when he came out of the concentration camps. And one of the things he firmly says, we cannot give to somebody else a sense of meaning for their lives. All we can do is to help them find it for themselves. Saunders is quick to add that some hospice patients die without tying up their lives neatly, leaving behind regrets and tattered relationships. Still, Wald uses a striking phrase, one that sounds at first like a contradiction. What I have found is that uh, people can die in good health. That is, with a sense of fulfillment. And feel the satisfaction of, I have a good life. Sometimes people don't have time or opportunity to go through that kind of thing, but it is possible to do, and that's one of the very exciting challenges that you have as a caregiver. It's the 10th, I mean the 16th, and we have lots of snow. It looks like a wonderland out there with all the snow this morning. It's mid-February, more than five months after doctors found a large tumor in Kitty Shanae's pancreas. The cancer has attacked her liver now, too. Day by day, her body shows mounting signs of failure. Well, I got up this morning. I thank God for the night, but I wasn't feeling very good, real swollen foot. Have been down since Sunday in the bed, just not having the good days I have been having. Stomach hurts very bad. The circle around Kitty has closed. She rarely leaves the apartment she shares with her sick husband, Maurice. Besides her hospice nurse, her only visitors are close family. What year was that, Mom? Uh, oh, that was 68. Kitty and her daughter, Teresa Harrison, look at photos from Kitty's years in the hair salon business in South Carolina. Well, see, we Is had that a buffet? Is that what you call that? You have to, I had to follow the styles. Right. Whatever was in, you had to go with it on. 
My mother was very foxy, and you should see these pictures. <laughs> oh, my God. You might dream of Jeannie or something. Kitty says she's yeah, loved her life, but it was hard. Growing up near Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina, she married a soldier at age 15 to escape her alcoholic mother, she says. Some of her biggest dreams were out of reach. I always wanted to be a dancer or a secretary. That was two things I really wanted back in those days. We didn't have much joy. Kitty moved a lot with her husband, an army officer. After raising four children, they divorced, and Kitty later married her current husband, Maurice Chenet. Her biggest blows were the loss of two adult children, a son in a plane crash and a daughter to disease. Teresa says her mother's stoical response to terminal illness is typical of her. Mom won't let us know that she can't handle something. Don't you think that's right, Mom? People have to understand that she's on top of it, no matter what she's going through. Otherwise, it's a weakness. No, because I always had to be strong. Well, I rise this morning at 6, and I pray to God, please let me live through the day and thank you for last night. I know it's selfish, but I just want to live on. Kitty gets another piece of hard news. Her sister, who lives in Virginia, is near death. Kitty's hospice nurse, Roland, makes his weekly visit as Kitty plans to see her sister one last time. Are you nervous about this trip at all? No. You must be sad, though, to think of... Yes, but, you know, it's better to see her alive than dead. Right. Roland Severson is a youthful 52. He has kind eyes and a teenager's head of brown hair. Since the subject of death has come up, he turns the talk to Kitty's future. You haven't seemed very scared of, of dying. I don't want to die, Roland. And I pray so hard every morning. But you know, I don't have any choice. I've noticed that in some, some of your interactions with Kitty, you're sort of reminding her that things are coming. As gently as possible. What's the importance of that? I think it's helpful for families and patients to not be continually reminded of their of their dying, but to not lose sight of those things that are of value in the here and now. Each day is, is such a unique opportunity for folks to engage with each other in, a, in such a real and unalloyed way. You know, a lot of times you go through life, you get to this point, and you think, well, why didn't I do so-and-so different? Mm-hmm. But it's the letters I've received. Mm-hmm that has just put me so right with a lot of things through life. Uh, The charity work I did, Mm -hmm. uh, all the people that I got into business that started to work for me. And just the other day I had one uh, from a friend telling me about dying and um, what I had left behind. Sometimes we never know what we left behind. It was good. It's a blessing. I've been a hospice nurse for six years. It's such an intimate process that we become almost a part of the family sometimes. Before switching to hospice, Roland worked as a nurse in a VA hospital. He says it was sad to watch old men die in hospital beds, sometimes alone 
with nurses too busy to do much more than give medicines. A hospital is not a great place to die. As a hospice nurse, Roland visits his patients in their homes, typically sitting for an hour or more, and acting as friend, counselor, even minister. It's a privilege for us. Engaging in those kind of delicate, beautiful relationships, conversations, just sort of layering back who we are as individuals and how we meet the challenges that, that face us. I don't want the time to come that I don't have any control over myself. Right. That's when I want to go. Right. You're pretty tough. I hope so. I hope so when we get there. You're quite a woman. Thank you, Roland. Thank you so much. You've been so good to me. As February winds down, Kitty weakens. The cancer starts to shut her body down. She sleeps more and more and manages to eat less and less. Her husband, Maurice, sees what's coming. I love Kitty so much, and I, I still have not really accepted the fact that very shortly I may be alone. Maurice's lung cancer is now considered terminal, and he's getting hospice care, too. The second week in March, Kitty's disease overwhelms her. Her daughter, Teresa, comes to stay with her and Maurice to take care of them with help from hospice. You having a hard time breathing, Mom? Mom, are you having a hard time breathing? Kitty's in bed, her eyes closed, her mouth open, an oxygen tube beneath her nose to ease her breathing. She's too weak to talk, even to swallow. Sometimes, when someone tries to speak to her, she seems to try mightily to rise to the surface, forcing her eyes half open. Stepping outside the room, Roland tries to prepare Teresa for what may be the last day of her mother's life. But she's comfortable and she can sleep. You know, she's just really withdrawn. She personality dissolves so that the basic core human functions of breathing and heartbeat are really the main thing. Now her feet are cooling. Right, I know, I noticed it in her hands. Right. Um, do, the, do people usually fight to the very end? No, oftentimes folks just sort of slip away. Right. Sometimes they may, she may open her eyes and look around. Uh-huh. It might be sort of a pronounced awakening mm-hmm. for a few moments before she closes her eyes and slips away. That would not be uncommon. After a couple of hours, Roland gets ready to leave. He sits on the edge of Kitty's bed, holds her hand, and moves close. I'll see you tomorrow. God bless you, girl. You've done beautifully. Get some rest now. Right here. When it's time. When it's time, Roland tells her, just cross over. That evening, about six hours later, Kitty suddenly gets animated, sits up, and tries to rise. Teresa calms her with a dose of drugs, then speaks to her. I just told her that um, everybody who's died that she loves was waiting for her and uh, that everybody loves her. I told her that God was waiting, that she was a mighty warrior, that he was waiting for her. And I believe that. Mom is the true warrior. With Kitty calm again, Teresa leaves the room for about 10 minutes. 
When she goes back in, Kitty's gone. Just a couple of hours later, Teresa sits in her mother's living room with Roland. I am very, very thankful. I have to look at it that way. I think God brought me here. He brought everybody together. And he let my mom die without suffering. I know that the breathing was bad, but that was just this week, really, that it was to that degree. And she wasn't in horrible agony from cancer pain. She was blessed. She was blessed. I think I almost told her that. You are a blessed woman. (laughs) At Kitty Shanae's request, her family does not hold a traditional funeral for her. Instead, a couple dozen of her children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren have a party in her apartment. They've decorated the place with pink and white crepe paper and balloons. Each person's going to get a rose and put in this space over here. And if they want to say something about mom, they can. And we have her picture hanging over the table. You go ahead, Christian. Minnie was really nice and she was sweet tied. I'm John Bewin. Uh, Nanny really, you know, took spoiler grandkids to, uh, to an art form. Uh, oh, remember Nanny always... taking care of all my friends and making me very popular. <laughs> always good to watch a, a basketball game with, and she knew what was going on. She was the center of our family and our lives. I'm Deborah Amos. After Kitty Shanae's death, Her husband, Maurice, was placed in a nursing home. Then suddenly, following his wife by just six days, he died. This program was first broadcast in June 2004. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross died in August 2004. Hospice isn't for everyone. Some people will always die in hospitals, fighting disease or injury to the end, and rightly so. But only about three in ten Americans get hospice care at the end of life. And many who do enter hospice just days before they die. Experts on care at the end of life say more people could live better in the last days if doctors, patients, and families would more fully accept the only thing we know for sure, that everybody dies. The Hospice Experiment was produced by John Bewin. It was edited by Deborah George. Senior producer, Sasha Eslanian. Project director, Misha Quill. Mixing by Craig Thorson. Production assistance from Will Atwater, Ellen Gettler, Tennessee Watson, Patrick McGrath, and Sarah Fazio. Web production by Ocean Kalin. The executive editor is Stephen Smith. The executive producer is Bill Buesenberg. Special thanks to the Madison Dean Initiative and Terence Yauk of Brook Hollow Productions. I'm Deborah Amos. To see slideshows of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and Kitty Shanae, visit AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you can download the program, sign up for our email newsletter, and find out how to order a CD of this program. Major funding for American Radio Works comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Funding for the Hospice Experiment from the JL Foundation. American Radio Works is the documentary unit of American Public Media. American Public Media.